in the second part of our lives tend to want to kind of reassess the decisions that we made as kids. The Dominic at 20 is very different to the Dominic at 50. I think it was Muhammad Ali that said, if you're the same man at 50, I'm sure this applies to women as well. As you were at 20, then you've wasted 30 years. There's this idea that we evolve as we, as we age and change. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Jeff Hamwe. We talk about Jeff's early career in sustainability and we talk about happiness and the U-shaped curve of happiness and when happiness or unhappiness peaks or when individuals find themselves in the trough of despair, often called a midlife crisis. Jeff is actually a teacher and master facilitator, and he's the co-founder and chief innovation and education officer at the Modern Elder Academy in California. And so the Modern Elder Academy is the world's first midlife wisdom school. They are on a mission to redefine midlife from crisis to calling, and they offer a structured series of programs designed to help individuals help think, feel, and explore their way through midlife. So one of the things we talk about is, you know, people would, I suppose as I was thinking about my early career in my early 20s, you're thinking, well, I'll work until I'm maybe 50 or 60 and then I'll retire. And now my perception of that has changed. I've certainly on this podcast interviewed a number of people in their 70s and 80s who are still working. And my view of that is that my view of my working life has changed and I see no great desire to retire, if I'm still delivering value and finding what I do, the work I do interesting, I'll carry on. So I was intrigued to talk to Jeff and find out purpose behind the Modern Elder Academy and why we think there is this thing called a midlife crisis and how they, Jeff and the team there, feel as though they are contributing and helping. And he says himself that often people have sort of three stages of their career. And this this stage now sort of late 40s onwards, maybe you, that's there's another 30 years of life there. What are you going to do with it? And how do you transition from a job as an executive in a business to something else? And what is that something else? And so a great conversation with Jeff. I found it warming and enlightening and informative. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hey, my name is Jeff Hamwe. I am one of the founders of the Modern Elder Academy, now known as MEA. We don't use the word elder anymore. And MEA is based in Baja California Sur, which is just south of the United States by about a thousand miles into Mexico. And also we are building two campuses in Santa Fe. So old Mexico and new Mexico. Okay. And what do you do at MEA? What do I do at MEA? I do two things, Dom. I'm, by the way, are you Dom or Dominic? Whatever you like. Dom. Okay. What, what, what do people that like you call you? Do you know what? I, I, I know this is unhelpful, but I don't care. <laughs> okay. What do I do at MEA? First of all, I'm, I'm the head of programming and product. Uh, so really sort of trying to work out what are, what are the things that we teach, share, do every week at the academy? And, and at MEA, and how do we get people to have kind of an amazing experience while they're down here with us? And then on the second side of things, I run, I built our first real estate project. We did a, a small community down here in Baja. My background is as a social entrepreneur. So my history, let's go into prehistory before we come into the academy. 
So I, I started off my career doing impact investing. It was, I was I worked with a Swiss guy called Stefan Schmidt-Heine, who at the time was Europe's richest man, and sort of charged around the world doing investing on his behalf, looking at sustainable innovations, kind of green business opportunities and options. I was young. I was in my early 20s. And the due diligence process for those investments was me and him. So that was kind of a fascinating place to start a career. I did that. How do you land a job like that in your early 20s? Because that's obviously with no experience at all. So what did you like randomly bump into him in an airport and he hired you or? You know what? A philosophy degree from Swansea University is definitely one of the qualifications you need to, to land a job. A job like that. You know what? I was, um, I, was, I was working in Canada and I got a job as an in-flight entertainment person. I was doing some programming in an in-flight entertainment company and I'd created a short film around a Change for Change campaign. So it was, it was one of the very first Change for Change campaigns. It was run by a guy called Paul Hoffman, who ended up at BP. But it was looking at, could you use people's loose change, send them in an envelope? It was that campaign. And it was the very first time anyone had done that. I was involved in that campaign. So this guy saw the video that we made on British Airways and said, oh, I'd like to meet that person. So I got met and I got brought in initially to write his autobiography as to how to become a green billionaire. Yeah. And then from there, it was like, okay, you now know more about sustainability than anyone else I've ever met because you've done all this research. Do you want to help set up this investment fund and this foundation that I'm looking at that subsequently became Avina and Aviva? Um, and he put $7 billion into it back in the late 90s. So this was, you know, this is a kind of classic European play of under the radar, no big fanfare. He didn't really want people to know what, what he was up to. Super dedicated. He, he came, there was some interesting background in, in terms of where his money had originally come from. So anyway, so that kind of propelled me into this world of sustainability, sustainable innovation. Is he still alive? Yeah. Yep. He's still going. And did they, so this, and he's still, those funds are still going? Uh-huh. Yep. Mostly investing in sort of Latin America through latin america yeah and uh, yeah he's a fascinating character anyway i i raised venture capital in the 2000s early 2000s and went to the bay area and set up a it started off as a dot-com but i set it up right at the beginning of the dot-com crash which <laughs> felt like really disastrous timing right and then sort of took the concept from online to offline. And the basic thesis was innovation is better, faster, cheaper. That's the sort of the, the basic idea. But anything in terms of sustainability oftentimes is more expensive, slower, and not as good, right? It's certainly initially not as good, maybe better planetarily or in terms of the impacts and so on. And so the innovation cycle is radically different in terms of how do you bring the people that need the products together with the people that are making the innovations? How do you bring capital in from across government, the public sector, the private sector, and get it to work? So I spent about 20 years in California doing that work with like a really crazy host of characters from NASA to Nike to Walmart to Ikea and BP and Semex and Procter and & Gamble and all sorts. And traveled the world doing that kind of work, which was pretty fascinating. And then in winter of 2017, my wife and I were like, okay, uh, we've got two young children. They were th three and four at the time. And we're exhausted. The Bay Area is madcap. It is a madcap, intense environment. So we decided to take a sabbatical. And we jumped in our truck and we drove out of our house in Marin, which is just north of the San Francisco Bay Area, and drove 1,500 miles south into Baja. I'd learned to surf in California. So I was like, okay, we're going to go to Baja and we're going to build a surf house and that's going to be my sabbatical. And then we'll come back up and make something happen. And when I was down there, Something new happened, right? It's like, interestingly, and actually this sort of stems into the broader conversation, Dom, that happened when I was 47 years old. 
And there's this thing called the U-curve of happiness. So here's, here's an interesting piece of demographics. Human happiness troughs out at around 47.7 years old. We are at our unhappiest at 47.7 years old, for real. And that's pretty much exactly when I said, okay, I can't deal with you know running a business. We had offices all around the world. I was traveling all over the place. My wife was working. We had two young children. I think both of us were like, what the hell is going on? So it's that tipping point between, I guess, your first adulthood, you know, the first sort of 30 years of your adulthood, and that second adulthood. If you look at our demographics, right, and in the UK, I actually took notes on this because I was like, oh, I wonder if the age, the life expectancy in the UK is the same as in the US. So in the UK, your life expectancy is about 81 years 81.77 years, puts you somewhere in September, I think, if you're going to die at your 81st year. Anyway, you know, 20 to 50 is your first adulthood, 50 to 80 is your second adulthood. And that 47.7, that kind of peak unhappiness is this global demographic trend where happiness tends to bottom out and then starts to climb back up again. And it was fascinating that that's when my wife and I decided to leave I didn't I wasn't aware of that data this by the way this is common in the US UK all of Europe Asia Africa this is this is a common phenomenon and and it's ascribed to all kinds of different things like you're looking after parents you're looking after children you're looking after business there's all of these pressures that are point in your life that kind of make it likely that you are less happy is there also a the trajectory you thought you were on you now have to admit you're never going to get to because somebody's just been promoted into a job that looks very like yours who wasn't born when you started working. And it's like, I'm, I now have to admit to myself I'm behind, not ahead. Oh, that sounds like a very personal trauma you're sharing. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I, but I do meet people, entrepreneurs in their late 40s. And I'm just thinking, you know, often people have this, you know, they describe, yes, they've got all this pressure around parents and children and, and work, but also there's a sense of, oh God, another 30 years doing this. Like, this hasn't made me happy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, yes, I, I've got to do something. And, and so, you know, as you say, that's sort of pivot point where you went, let's get in a truck and go somewhere else and see what happens. And see what happens. You know, uh, there is this Jungian sort of universal piece of research that people kind of are at their unhappiest at 47.7, and then they climb out of it, except for in one place in the world. This research does not apply in Russia, which is interesting. And and you were, we were talking about this sort of journey from ego to soul and how in the second part of our lives, we tend to want to kind of reassess the decisions that we made as kids, you know, the Dominic at 20 is very different to the Dominic of, at 50. I think it was Muhammad Ali that said, if you're the same man at 50, I'm sure this applies to women as well. As you were at 20, then you've wasted 30 years. There's this idea that we we evolve as we, as we age and change, right? So I, I also want to hit something, though. Not only do we evolve and change, while things are definitely, because your point was like, gosh, you know, you have to start facing yourself as an adult, right? And maybe you're not as successful as you'd like, or maybe your, your narratives and your hopes and dreams are not as, as successful as you'd hoped. I did want to talk a little bit about some of these kind of entrepreneur narratives. I know that the word entrepreneur is kind of like this hallowed American word. The Americans are very much tuned into this idea of being an entrepreneur and entrepreneurism. There's this great sort of quote from Paul Graham, who's the founder of Y Combinator. And he's, he basically sort of said, you know, the cutoff for investors in terms of investment in an entrepreneur is around 32. And after 32, people tend to be a little bit skeptical. There's an interesting Harvard Business Review article headed up by a guy called Pierre Azoulay. And what it looks at is like, okay, well, then let's look at the data. Who are actually the successful entrepreneurs? Where are the successful entrepreneurs that everyone keeps talking about? And in their analysis, here's that what they came up with. Of the top 0.1% of startups in the U.S., based on growth in their first five years, the 
they found that the, the founders started their companies on average when they were 45 years old. So these high-performing firms are identified based on employment growth, firms of the fastest sales growth, and also startups that successfully exit through an IPO or an acquisition. So there's this sort of utterly fascinating counterfactual, right? There's this idea that, no, 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 to be an entrepreneur, you have to be young and have new ideas and fresh perspectives. And then this weird thing happens that actually the most successful enterprises are started by people. The point one most successful enterprises in the US are started by people 45 years and beyond. And the data carries on in that article. So it's like, okay, that is fascinating. And by the way, a lot of that data carries across to the UK. I don't have as much fine grain detail on the UK data, but it, it does raise the question of like, ah, do we have to reframe aging? Do we have to reframe our thinking about what it is to get old? If we're living in 1955 in the US, average life expectancy was literally around 55. Now it's gone up to 80, right? So in the last 100 years, basically, 75 years, we've added a second adulthood to our lives. And this isn't just more age. This is, you know, we're, we're actually doing well in those extra years. I think we're living in a very different physical body and in many other ways to, let's say, what our parents or grandparents would have had to have lived in in terms of physical body is a really weird way of framing it. Our health span has increased as well as our lifespan. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I, was talk, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, uh, I mean, it, I, frankly, I didn't think he looked particularly fit and healthy. So I thought that perhaps he was, I thought that perhaps he was talking himself into it, but he said, why would I want to live to 90 and have been ill for 10 years? And I'm thinking, why would you want to be ill for 10 years? I can get that, but you could do something about it. I'm thinking, I'm standing looking at him going, yeah, there's quite a few things I would do if I was in your body, if I was thinking I was living to 90. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you are, you are a little bit overweight or a lot and you don't look very healthy. And you were telling me why it was so impossible for you to take physical exercise. And it was just like, right. Okay. That's your, that's your narrative. Fine. But it's not my job to persuade you otherwise. Well, and, and you're sort of hitting the nail on the head in terms of some of the work that we do at MEA. We have, so we have our personal narratives about aging, right? And a lot of these narratives have been just like that business case, right? Oh, only young people can start businesses. Turns out that's just bullshit. Anyone in their 40s and 50s, not only are they able to start businesses, they have EQ you know, they have the emotional quotient to start a business. They have financial resources, social, cultural networks, understandings, this kind of vision of, of what might work. Their ability to manage people goes up in terms of creating safe working spaces. So there are all these counterfactual narratives about aging. But the narrative about aging is supremely powerful at a, at a kind of a social level right? This idea that you can't learn new things as you get older. You can't try new things as you get older. You can't be new things as you get older. You can't start a new business as you get older. And I think one of the things that we work really hard with people to do is, what are your mindsets? Where are you coming in and saying, I can't do that. I can't be that. If you're going to live to adulthood if you've been i think of it often dom as like the philosopher's stone right it's very sort of harry potterish we in the last 75 years we've been granted a second adulthood that is literally the wish of every single magician alchemist whatever in the last 500 years was to extend adult life right to extend their lives we've been granted this do you know what the majority of retired americans do with their time once they retire nothing yeah yeah it's terrifying it's terrifying you can't talk to retired people they just talk about what they used to do when they had something interesting to talk about it's just ah oh. in the us in america retired people spend between 45 and 50 hours a week watching television it's kind of funny but if you think about it we have been granted the philosopher's stone the mental models that we have for aging are so negative that 
what people feel is left to them is telly, right? So I think a lot of it is to sort of get to people and say, all right, where are your mindsets stuck and lodged? You know, if entrepreneurs can be successful in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and the data pans that someone in their 60s is as likely to succeed as an entrepreneur in the US as someone in their 30s, that's fascinating, right? So again, if we can recalibrate our mindsets, if we can start to recognize some of those social narratives and find alternative data, alternative stories, you can then start to reconstruct a story. And I think, again, just I know your podcast tends to be more business oriented. So here's just some interesting little data nuggets. Over 50s market in the U.S. In the U.S., the over 50s house around $8 trillion. It is the single largest aggregation of wealth, both in absolute terms and in relative terms in human history. $8 trillion in the over 50s in America. They are the longest lived generation. If you make it to 50 in America, you're going to live longer than any generation before, right? So to me, it's like, wow, this this is just a fascinating demographic shift. This is a fascinating lifestyle opportunity in terms of if people are going to live longer, if their health span is going up, why aren't we sort of thinking about not just the crap that we sell them, but what we can do in that stage of our lives, reimagining our lives. There are three things that predict a healthy midlife. The first is wellness, right? So to your to your friend in the pub or whoever it was, you know, if you're not well, it's not going to go well, right? So looking after your physical health, your your sort of spiritual health, whatever it is that you're that you're interested in. The second is community. In the US there's and, and actually I believe since COVID kind of globally in the Western world there's been this loneliness epidemic. Just a huge amount of isolation people as they get older particularly are isolated this is particularly the case in men by the way who often tend to get their community through work and so then as they retire they become massively isolated and have very few outlets for connection but the third and the important one is purpose and this idea of having purpose is is kind of nebulous but Something that is greater than yourself, being committed to something that is greater than yourself. It might be walking dogs or whatever the hell it is. But if you bring together some of, if you tease together some of these factors, so let's bring together the idea of the this huge concentration of wealth in the U.S., likely similarly so in the U.K. The uh, the fact that we're living longer and the fact that we need purpose. I feel like this generation, you know, the over 50s, and I, and I guess they're multiple generations, but let's just call it, you know, the over 50 generation has an opportunity to do something wildly impactful in the world. You know, in terms of we're facing extraordinary planetary, social, cultural challenges, global challenges. And I feel like this generation has both the resources, the lifespan, the health span and the wisdom to get after it. So that's kind of what animates our work at the academy. It's like, wow, okay, this is cool, right? If we're able to set up these businesses, if we're able to do these things, how interesting would it be to say to this generation, it's on us? And also have the time. The time. There's some time affluence as we get older that is amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, one of my one of my dear friends was, you know, her, her kids have just left home and gone off to university. And she was bereft. I mean, you know, and purposeless. She had to go looking for, you know, think deeply about her life because it was a big goal, big hole. Yeah. Empty nesting. Again, your purpose shifts, right? And and for so many people, that can be like this, this sort of event horizon and you just fall into a hole. If you've got 30 years left of life after your kids have left home or 25 years, that is that is a long time to spend in the hole. You have to really take time to then say, okay, what's next? Who am I? What do I care about? What are my values? What's important to me? What do I want to do? What's more important to me than me? Um, you know, if you've been a carer your entire life, there are all these hurdles in terms of your own mindsets to 
getting back into the workplace or starting something in terms of your own self-limiting beliefs, your own kind of constraint. Fab. So what do you do at MEA to, to change the world? How do you, you know, you've created this fantastic campus. Mm-hmm. What attracts people to come down to you? Maybe I look at it another way from some of the people I've talked to about innovation. They're sort of this jobs to be done you know, what, what is the job to be done that you're doing for people? So are you helping them uncover their sense of purpose? Yeah, I think they're lost and you're helping them find a direction because you've got some program or you're inspiring them or. So why do people come? Why do people come to the academy? I think the first sort of primary reason is in midlife. So between sort of 40, 50, 60, 70, people are in transition. We've had people, by the way, from 26 countries and tons from the UK come to the academy, come come and spend time with us at MEA. What is a transition? You mentioned one of them, right? Empty nesting. But similarly, we have professional transitions, physical transitions, all kinds of transitions that we go through in the middle of our lives as we're sort of taking this journey from ego to soul. Here's the thing about midlife transitions. When you're 16, 17, 18, you're going through a lot of these types of transitions, right? Physical changes, you're you're going from, let's say, school to work or whatever. You do those things in a pod. You go together with a group of other people, right? Your classmates, your friends, your mates from school, whatever it happens to be. When you do these transitions in midlife, you're often doing them on your own. So, you know, the person that's lost their job or been made redundant, the person that's whose children have left or the person that's started work, you know, in their 50s, they're often doing that in a very isolated way. Being in a transition on your own is incredibly difficult, incredibly isolating. So to come to a place where other people are doing the same stuff is, is helpful to be in a community of people. You mentioned purpose. I think Typically, we kind of go through work around things like generativity. So how do you have a more generative framework or mindset around the second part of your life? And then we move into purpose. So if you sort of think about it, the first step is often, what's the transition I'm in? The second step is, how do I kind of reframe my thinking and become more generative around it so that I can have this more aspirational second half of my life than watching 47 hours of television and then the third step is like okay now that I'm kind of outside of myself I'm looking at something greater than myself what's my purpose what do I care about a lot of our community come for a week come for two weeks so they do our online courses and they stay in community we have chapters all over Europe all over the states that are super active we've had about 500 chapter events all around the world alumni reunions and stuff like that and so i think the community element of people coming together being together is also tremendously powerful as well there's this there's this sort of soul that we share which is this idea that wisdom is shared it's not taught i don't i don't think you come to a modern wisdom school or a modern elder academy an academy like this looking to be taught something I think you come to kind of polish up, you know, be reminded of things, be offered things, share with a group of peers. And really, I think a lot of what happens that's intensely impactful is over dinner, over a glass of wine, you know, when you're meeting new people that are doing similar things to yourself. And there's that magical moment of unlock. I just, I just, yeah, absolutely. Well, I heard, I heard, I mean, what, what I wanted, the reason I, wanted to get you on to talk about this is because I heard Chip speak about it a couple of years ago at, at an event in LA and I was intrigued. I was intrigued. And you know what, as you were speaking, it's interesting because I was just thinking to myself, when did I start this business that I'm doing, the coaching mm. that I do with my purpose to demystify business growth for entrepreneurs? And it was when I was 47, nine years ago. Wow. And it never, that I mean, I never occurred to me. It might just be coincidence, but probably not. <laughs> Probably that sense of dissatisfaction, probably not unhappiness, but dissatisfaction. And and I can definitely see that community 
because the first thing I decided was, look, if that was my purpose, who was my community? And that was, I went, I went searching for so a group of coaches who thought like I did and who did what I did to, to try and have that sense of sharing with people on a journey. Cause it's important. Otherwise it's just bloody lonely. And you need that, you need that community to replace what you did at work. As you were talking about entrepreneurs in the US, I know Vern Harnish has this sort of joke he tells all the time, which is like 99% of startups in the US never guess past one employee. And many of those companies are overstaffed. People who thought they were starting a business and all they did is gave themselves a job, which paid worse than the one they had before. That's fab. Do you have, I mean, you must have some amazing stories from people who, you know, who come back to you and go, look what I've done, look what I've achieved, you know, that, that unlock. What are, you, what are your, some of your favorite? I think, honestly, they, we, we see so often people coming to process a pivot. It, it is that midlife pivot, right? It's like, God, I'm a high-powered lawyer and everyone, you know, in my life is telling me that I'm, I'm doing the right thing, I'm making tons of money and I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. Should I leave? And it's always fun to have those types of people then come back to you and say, oh my God, I've left. I'm doing my thing and I finally feel lined up. You know, I'm, I've started a cooking school. I've started a, what, whatever it is, right? It's, it's whatever is in more alignment with who and what they are. The journeys that people take aren't necessarily sort of hugely dramatic, but it's more around, you know, I was a working mother. And now I finally found my role as, as a coach or as a business, you know, coach or leader or whatever it happens to be. And, and it's that kind of, I needed to reframe both how I felt and how I understood myself to be able to go on that journey. There are other kind of care transitions that are often really impactful to watch. People who have spent their forties and fifties looking after parents or children. And it's brutal. You know, this is seriously hard work. And then finding themselves on the other side of that, being like, okay, now I can actually do what I want to do. And, you know, they're traveling or whatever. If they're lucky financially, they're traveling. If they're, if they're needing to work, they've found a purpose. They've found a business to go into. So those are the types of stories that are often interesting. You know, this reframing your mindset about aging, Calivia MIT, her research shows that people with a positive attitude, a positive mindset towards aging, will get up to about seven years extra life. So having a good mindset about aging is as good for you as quitting smoking. Fab. That's worth knowing, right? It's, and, but to have a good mindset about aging, you actually have to pay attention to what the hell you're thinking about yourself as you age. Magic. Look, there was another thing we were chatting about before, before we started recording. And you said you were writing a book, and I said, I'm going to ask you about that. Okay. What are you writing about? So I'm writing a book about men's feelings. And of course, there'll be some women listening going, that'll be a short book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, when, I, when I started sharing with my wife that I was, I was writing this book, she was, she was like, oh, God, you're not going to become that guy, are you? The feelings guy. And I literally got this sort of relentless ribbing around... You know, how do you feel about that, Jeff? So it, here we go. Let's go down the rabbit hole. Let, let's, let's start from a really practical transactional point of view. I work with this group called DPC, and they're, they're, they're basically a, a CEO-level advisory group. It, there's a, one of the, the principals there is a guy called Tom Casey, and they do research of leadership trends and so on and so forth, and they work one-on-one -on -one with CEOs. When I was talking to him about this, he was like, the most important thing for emergent leaders in Fortune 500 companies in the US right now is in the emotional intelligence of the people that they are working with, how things feel. If you look at the sort of the history of being a man, <laughs> how things feel was literally, it's a joke, right? It, I, if you look up on on the the dream stealer the google what what does you know men's feelings the first the first meme that comes up is men have feelings they feel hungry the second one is <laughs> men have feelings but who cares right 
So I think I think both personally and culturally, we we are faced with this avalanche of data that says that it is not good to feel. And if you look at the sort of the prehistory of this, it's this idea that men shouldn't feel right. If your job is to protect and provide, and that involves killing things, whether it's animals or people that are dangerous to your family or whatever, feelings are kind of a pain in the neck. You don't want that in in those scenarios. Happily, we're no longer in that scenario. And what we're starting to see is that actually the way things feel in a business, in a family, in a friendship, is actually kind of important. So I, I have to say, when I started even talking about this, I had just huge anxiety because that first reaction, right, that first reaction is like, oh, God, you're not going to do that, are you, Jeff? Feelings historically have been sort of the domain of, of, of women. It's kind of a feminized thing. It's not masculine to be touchy-feely. It's not masculine at all, you know. And I think, I actually think that there is a huge unlock, which is if you know how things feel, then you can make things feel better, and so you can feel better. So to feel better, you have to feel better. So. I'm kind of taking myself on this roller coaster ride of a journey with my own feelings and trying to work out what the hell's going on under the hood, both in terms of how to make my own life feel better, but also in terms of how do we do this? How do we do this as men? And you, you, you sort of made a joke about women. I think women have had to do their feelings in relationship to men that aren't allowed to feel. How do those dynamics shift if we're all allowed to feel, right? I think women will feel differently with men that are allowed to feel. What kind of a future does that open up? Again, at work, at home, and so on. I I started off the podcast by telling you that I came from this sort of sustainability world. I had this aha moment, Dom, where I was like, crap, man. At the heart of this, if winning is more important than how things feel, is is that part of why we are in this situation environmentally socially because we all know that it feels crap to be destroying the planet but if feelings are not allowed to show up in the workplace then as part of our calculus then it's okay to destroy the planet it's okay to destroy communities it's okay to sort of break things down and how would the world shift if that wasn't okay How would the discourse shift if we were like, no, no, how it feels is a legitimate thing to talk about. I think it's fascinating because I, if I think about the work I do with clients, most of the models that we use are feelings models. What is a feelings model, Dom? Explain that to me. Well, so if I take the work from Patrick Lencioni and the table group, then, you know, he wrote a book, God, 20 years ago five dysfunctions of a team. And so, you know, that's not, it's not based on some empirical research. It's his sense of working with leadership teams. And he said, look, there's a fundamental thing at the base of his pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid is is results. It's like, well, if you want results, you can't start with results. What you have to do is you have to say, if this company has a team of people who are trying to deliver results, high-performing teams have trust in one another based on vulnerability. And so that means we have to create psychological safety. People have to turn up and say, I made a mistake or this is a thing I'm not very good at, or I I didn't do it, and that the team have your back. Now, I don't normally have people ring me up to ask me to help with that as a challenge. They there's Clients come with a challenge, which might be results. And it's like, underneath that is, is a piece of work that says, I think if we do some work on the team, we might be able to help you get better results. And it can just be absolutely transformational. I mean, it, ha- it, it is all the time. I mean, you know, we spent two days with a team that weren't a team here on the farm and they've just gone away saying 10 out of 10. You know, some of them were quite cynical. We've done it before. In fact, one of the guys said, I've been here for seven years and we've done this type of thing probably every year for seven years. This is the first time it feels like it's made a difference. And, you know, probably a mixed group, 50-50, male, female. And people do start feeling very, very uncomfortable. But if they're surrounded by people that they trust, then, you know, 
people open up. And when I look at some of the other models that we have around, where do you think you are on the sort of startup startup journey? You know, when you start a business, it's very, the emotion around that is it's very exciting. And often clients are ringing me up because they've hit a brick wall and they're ringing me up and I'm saying, how do you feel about your business now? And they say, oh, I'm frustrated. I'm, I, we're stuck. One, one CEO said to me, it's fucking Groundhog Day. Can't bear to go to work on a Monday because I'm going to go to work on a Monday and I think I'm failing and I think my team think I'm failing. I hate feeling like this. Can you help me? If you can't help us in six months, we're just going to sell it and give up because I don't want to feel like this anymore. And so that it's all, it's all feelings. <laughs> it's just, it, I don't think people feel comfortable starting there. So people bring up and say, I've got this business challenge. We're not growing fast enough or we're not profitable enough. And when you look at it, often underpinning that is some thing about a lack of alignment or a lack of clarity. And that's around people having difficult conversations. They haven't disagreed. They haven't said how they feel. And when you can get through that, we've got an aligned team pulling together. And, look, and then what happens often is this new clarity is not what everybody suits everybody. And so some people often are not on the bus a year from when we start. Let's rewind. You said psychological safety. So Google did something called Project Aristotle. Where they they basically were trying to understand what were the, the predictive factors of high-performance teams. They looked at all kinds of things, and where they arrived was that the high-performance team was not... You couldn't predict it by the sort of the brilliance of the individual's what what actually determined a high-performance team was psychological safety. And one of the key factors in a psychologically safe team is age diversity. So we rewind now back to the sort of the, the MEA theme, right? It's just people who, are, who have a bit more EQ, emotional intelligence that they can bring to a team, that, that the experience of a lifetime of seeing how people operate together, work together, how you generate that psychological safety. And you talked about the, the sort of the CEOs that you're working with and, and where it comes down to. And a lot of the work we work both at MEA, we work with both B2B and B2C clients. And on our B2B curricula, where it ends up kind of landing most often is around these incredibly simple things that are, that often go unlooked at or underexamined. How do you listen effectively to someone? How do you listen to someone? As you get more and more senior in a company, you spend up to about 75% of your time listening rather than speaking. In terms of key leadership skills, there's this group called the International Listening Association, and I'm chuckling because you've never heard of them, right? Because they're just busy listening to everybody. It's like, okay. The ILA, we are very quietly listening to you all. I want them and the Speakers Bureau to have a kind of co-conference together. <laughs> but they, they basically did a kind of, just recently they did a review of top 10 management kind of skill sets, et cetera, et cetera, all the publications. And the key skill is listening. The key skill in a manager, key way to create this psychological safety is your ability to listen there's hilarious data on people thinking they're about 10 times as good as they actually are as listeners. So we all think we're tremendously good at this stuff, but we don't know how to listen. So how do you listen? 2% of people in the US have had any formal training in listening. It's just breathtaking, right? It's the key management skill. And we all think we intuitively know how to do it. And we all way overestimate how good we are at doing it. And we're kind of crap at it, it turns out. And then corollary to listening is rather than supplying answers, how do you ask good questions? Well, I was I was thinking I had a I had a podcast guest on in the early days, a guy called Gareth Chick. One of the things that he does is he trains mm. coaches. Certainly he was doing it then. He was coaching newly minted SVPs at Google. Mm. And he said, to be, when you get to be an SVP at Google, you've been promoted above your area of expertise. And so as a leader, is the first time in your career you are asking questions to which you don't already know the answer. And, and people are terrified mm -hmm. because they don't know what questions to ask. And of course, then they're listening for the first time. And he's, it's that, oh my God, I'm now complete. I'm like a fish out of water for all of this stuff that I, 
all of this stuff I, that I was leaning on before is no longer available. So they bring him in to coach people through the transition. Yeah. And for the record, again, learning how to ask a generative question, it's just a foundational leadership skill. There's a practice called appreciative inquiry that we teach. And oftentimes appreciative inquiry is used in a kind of a business context, but even in a life context, right? There's an energy to the questions that we ask. Questions feel a certain way. There's a feeling to questions. And I know this is sounding very West Coast California and a lot of British people are like, what the, what the hell is he talking about? I can't fucking bear this. Let, let's do it. Let's give it. They're not here. They've already switched off. <laughs> They've gone. We lost them. We lost them a long time ago. Yes. You're the CEO of a company and you say, we're losing market share. And I want to know who's responsible. How does that question feel? That question feels like someone's to blame, someone's responsible. It feels frightening, right? If if your C-suite is sat around you and saying, I want to know who's responsible. And those questions, by the way, get asked all day, every day, in every company. You're creating something that feels fearful. Same question. We're losing market share. And I want to know what we can learn from our highest performing team to, to improve the way we're doing things. Or I want to know what we can learn from our competitors to improve what we're doing. One is kind of a fear-based question. It feels frightening. The other one is generative. It's like, okay, let's all lean in and work this out. How can we do better? We The, the problem with even questions is we're used to asking questions that are diagnostic in nature. By the way, Don, we are all over the place right now. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Well, do you know what I was thinking when you said that, you know, there's sort of blame and fear attached to that. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm thinking that question is probably asked by a CEO in that context because they know the answer. They're just seeing whether everyone agrees with them or not before they go and shoot them. Whereas whereas there's a vulnerability involved in the second question, which is what can we learn from our, it's, there is a, I'm, this is something I don't understand, which is there's a vulnerability involved in what can we learn from what can I learn? What can we learn from looking at our competitors? Or I don't know the answer. We're losing market share and I don't know. Whereas, and that's, that's very different. And it was interesting because you said earlier that, you know, people entering midlife, you know, they know about themselves. They have a higher level of EQ. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it's just, I, I do see that in, in some organizations that have hired me, I guess. They hire me because I bring a different perspective not just from a, i've you know sat in their chair and run their company but i'm older and also i've got no dog in their fight right right so mm-hmm. ask them questions to try and help them get to an answer but i don't care what the answer is mm-hmm. so so we're gonna wrap this sucker up have you got like a closing because <laughs> we could talk all day what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier to dovetail with the ending of this discussion the way things feel is important And that applies as much to the people you're with as for yourself. So I wish I'd known that earlier because, you know, I've I've kind of run a life where I'm, I don't, you know, pay much attention to how I felt about things or how things felt to other people. And I wish I'd known more about that earlier, not from a transactional perspective, but because it would have made the ride better. Yeah. Okay. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, the details matter. Yeah. So I think that there is, there, there, you know, there's a sort of the swashbuckling entrepreneur. And I wish I'd, I'd had more of an awareness that, that that is a very powerful and useful thing to be that kind of visionary swashbuckler, but that the details are as important as the vision. And, you know, I've always surrounded myself with detailed people, but becoming more of a detailed person myself, I wish I'd sort of known that earlier and approached that earlier. Fab. And Jeff, do you have any book recommendations for us? Anything that you think we should read? You know what? I'm, I'm a voracious reader and I, I read all the time, all kinds of things. And because I'm write, writing this book on men's feelings, I'm reading two books right now that I think are really interesting the first is, I don't want to talk about it, by a guy called Terence Real, R-E-A-L. And that's essentially looking at the psychology of men and why men don't want to talk about their feelings and how men kind of process their emotions and digest their emotions. It is 
it's a pretty impactful book. It's a pretty, it's, it, there are moments where I'm, where you're like, oh crap, that's, that's me. That's really intense. And the other one is a sort of a more of a quantitative and qualitative look at what's going on with men. It's called Of Boys and Men by Richard Reeves. And it's looking at some of the data and what we might do about it in terms of, of what Reeves kind of classifies as a crisis in manhood. And I think that's pretty fascinating too. I, th- there is a last book, Am I Allowed Three? And I, I think anyone should, and everyone should really read this book. It's called Invisible Women by Caroline Perez. Fabulous book. Yeah. My Actually, my most gifted book, because I have two daughters. And so yeah. I read that book and I just thought, I just... Well, it's full of stuff you don't know until you know it. But yeah, just one example, because I remember this off the top of my head. Women have women are more seriously injured or ha- or die in car accidents than men because the crash test dummy is a 170 male, 90 kilo male. So yeah. that's why when you see women driving, they look in this weird position behind the steering wheel that they can't see over. And then when it does have when they do have a crash, they get injured because it wasn't five star tested for them. Just fascinating. What I love about the book and what I think is important about the book is, you know, if you're a woman, it's just very clear data on, you know, there's a, there's this sort of very emotional discourse around patriarchy that can sometimes become incredibly polarizing and an an attack and defense. I, I feel like what, what she's able to do in Invisible Women is say, look, this is just the facts. Do with them what you will. This is not my opinion. This is just data. And I think that's really powerful. For me, I found it a very powerful powerful entry point into it. And as men, I think we can often be very defensive around this idea of patriarchy and the, some of the privileges that we've received as men. Once you start to read that data, it's like, oh, holy crap. Yeah, I've been, I've been skiing downhill my entire life, right? And, and everyone else around me is climbing up that sucker. Yeah. yeah. And as you say, it's just data. So it's just nice to know mm-hmm. how how the world is stacked. Yeah, exactly. Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you, Dom. I really enjoyed it. I really did. It's been great. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.